to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, the the text is written on the back of the notes. Luke chapter 19, as we cover the parable of the ten minas, as it's commonly known, the parable of the ten minas. Now, I remind you again of our location. Jesus is just about to approach Jerusalem. In fact, next week is the triumphal entry as he goes down the Kidron Valley, being hailed by his disciples. He's leaving Jericho, where he has healed a blind man, where he has um, brought salvation to the household of Zacchaeus. And he speaks this parable, his final parable before entering Jerusalem, as he finishes the longest part of Luke's gospel, the journey narrative, begun in 951, where Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, chapter 951, all the way through next week, it's the journey narrative. This is his closing teaching of that time, the parable of the ten minas. I'd like to begin by reading the text, then with what time we have looking at it. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him. They might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for... I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put the money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pray. Lord God, as we consider this parable, we find ourselves at one place or another within it. All of us are either the faithful servants or the unfaithful servant or these citizens who resent and reject your reign and rule. So Lord, as we look at this and consider what is meant by it, help us to rightly identify ourselves Help us to learn from it. Would that we would receive your blessing, your reward at your return. Give us the insight to behold wondrous things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I just said, this parable is cosmic in its scope. All of humanity, every one of us, you and I, will find ourselves within this parable. And this parable speaks to the time period that we are living in. It's it's speaking to the time period between when a king leaves and when a king returns. And then it focuses on the judgment at his return. And so it is very instructive for us. It's getting us right where we are. We are living in between Christ's ascension to receive a kingdom, to receive a name above every name, and his return. And so this is a very appropriate text for us 
And we are one of these three categories. So as we go through this, I would, I would encourage you to prayerfully consider not who your neighbor is or the person sitting next to you is, but where do you, where do I fit into this parable? What will be our reward or recompense? So let's look at this in three parts. Luke gives us the introduction, and then we have the events prior to the master's departure, and then we have the events upon his return. So first, Jesus tells the parable of the ten minas. Now, Luke links this to what just came before. He is now presumably leaving Zacchaeus' house, heading the 12 and a half miles or so between Jericho to Jerusalem. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the king was to appear immediately. So why does he tell this parable? He gives two reasons. One, he's near Jerusalem. Two, they think the kingdom is getting ready to appear. Now let's define our categories. The Jews of Jesus' day were expecting a literal, physical, earthly, geographic kingdom. There were no amillennial Jews. Four or five of you get that. Okay, that's fine. Um, but there weren't. And any honest reading of the Old Testament recognizes that expectation. Just go read Psalm 2. Read the end of Zechariah. They're looking for this kingdom. And here is this prophet from God. They've heralded him as a prophet, a man from God, working wonders, teaching like no one ever taught. And he's drawing near to Jerusalem. And the crowd is getting the sense that something big is about to happen. And something big is about to happen. But it's not what they expect. And so the excitement is high. We're going to see it overflow as Jesus descends the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem and they hail him later on in this chapter. But they're expecting not a suffering king, but a deliverer. Not a deliverer of sin, but a deliverer from the Romans. A deliverer from geopolitical enemies. Possibly what Jesus has just said in the previous verses elevates their anticipation. Look at how he ended his time with Zacchaeus. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Now, salvation can be read in a number of ways. Deliverance being one of them. Perhaps this crowd think it's today, it's now. He's going to do the deliverance now. He's almost at Jerusalem for the, for the high feast of Passover. Now is when this miracle-working prophet will save Israel. Well, that he will, but not as they expect. Not as they expect. So the purpose of this parable is to instruct, but more importantly, to prepare for the delay of his second coming. This is not the first time he's tried to prepare his disciples for this. Turn back to chapter 17. And in chapter 17, the Pharisees begin the question about the kingdom, verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is there. Behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And then lest they think he's purely spiritualized the kingdom, he then tells his disciples, verse 22, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and the lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things, be rejected by this generation. So, Jesus has already taught that the kingdom is here in a sense. The king is here. And there's a growing formation of the king's people. And that will continue to grow and spread like leaven through a loaf. But the kingdom in its fullness is not here now. And it will come suddenly like lightning. But first, the son of man must die and suffer. So these people are expecting the installation of this kingdom immediately. And this isn't simply an expectation of these people, but in Acts chapter 1, after spending 40 days with the risen Lord, what is the question on the lips of Peter? Acts chapter 1, we read this, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still not amillennialists. They're still expecting a physical, literal kingdom after 40 days with the resurrected Lord and his teaching. So this is the expectation of Israel. It's the expectation of those who read the Old Testament. And the answer is not, well, there's no kingdom or it's a spiritual kingdom. It's later. The kingdom will be later. It's not now, not in its fullness. And consequently, 
Jesus' disciples require endurance. You and I need endurance. We see even from the disciples, they can mount up their zeal and their passion for a brief moment. So Thomas can say, let us go to Jerusalem and die with him. And Peter can pull out his sword and chop off Malchus's ear. But the long haul, after Messiah is killed, we see their faith weaken. And so Christianity and being a disciple of Christ is not a call to a, to a powerful weekend or a couple months of zeal. It's a lifelong endeavor. This time period between the king's departure and his return has now spanned over 2,000 years. And so Jesus' disciples need to prepare, get prepared for his delay in his second coming. So this, this parable absolutely still expects a physical kingdom to come, but it's about the time in between. Now we get introduced to our participants in this parable. First, we have the nobleman, we have his 10 servants, and we have his citizens. Who is the nobleman? Who might this be? Maybe someone who's just recently been heralded as the son of David. Of course, the nobleman in this parable is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one born of noble birth, both from human descent and as the son of God. And Jesus is going to receive a kingdom. And he departs and he ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 1. And he will return with armies to receive his kingdom. So the, the first person in this parable, the nobleman, is clearly teaching us something true about Jesus. Then we have his servants. And these are his property, his slaves, the NESB translates it as. These are those who've recognized his authority, those who recognize his right to rule them, in contrast to the citizens. Now, you've got to bear in mind, citizens is a stronger term in this day, this age, than it does here. He's writing to Theophilus, a Roman official of some sort, and reading through Acts, we understand that being a citizen in the Roman world gave you rights, privileges, so that Paul can, can get the people who've beaten him terrified when he tells them, I'm a citizen, you've beaten me unlawfully. The citizens in the Roman world had rights, privileges, expectations. We see that they're going to use them in a few minutes. So we've got the nobleman. And, and as you try to figure out where you are in this parable, I'll tell you with certainty, that's not you. That's not me. You're one of the latter ones. There's the servants and there's the citizens. So right out of the gate, do you view yourself as someone with rights? With, with, you know, things to be respected? Or do you identify yourself as the Lord's slave, the Lord's servant, the one over whom he commands? Because that's what this is ultimately about. Which servants follow their master's directives and which servant does not, ultimately? So that's the purpose, the people. What's the point? The point, I think pretty clearly, the main point is this. Be a faithful servant in the Lord's absence. Be a faithful servant in the Lord's absence. There's other truths here, but the main point, and the servant who gets the most description is the unfaithful servant. And this, if you turn back to chapter 12, is a parable that Jesus has told in many times in many places. Similarly, with variations. In chapter 12, he told another parable with almost the exact same point. Starting in chapter 12, verse 35. Stay dressed for action. Be ready, be faithful, be alert. Don't get distracted. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants who the master finds awake. When he comes, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. And if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at the hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. You're getting the emphasis, be alert, be faithful, be vigilant, be active. The Son of Man is coming at now, you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them a portion of their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant. You get this repeated blessing for the faithful servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. That's what we see happen in our text. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. 
Master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. At an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act accordingly will receive a severe beating, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. And then he gives the ethic, which is identical to our ethic, Everyone to whom, well, similar. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required, and from him whom is entrusted much will be demanded the more. So in chapter 12, Jesus told a parable, emphasizing the blessed state of faithful servants upon their master's return and the woeful state of unfaithful servants upon the master's return. It's the same main point here, which is you and I want to be the faithful servants. You don't want to be the citizens, and you don't want to be the unfaithful servants. That's the main point. This is a call to faithfulness. This is a call to faithfulness over the long haul, over an extended period in the Lord's absence. hope you begin to see how this is a very appropriate, fitting, and relevant call for us. So let's look at the actual narrative itself. The, the narrative breaks up over two parts. A nobleman departs to receive a kingdom, and a king returns giving fitting rewards. Let's look at verses 12 through 14. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Okay. Nobleman departs to receive a kingdom. So the first plot point is this. We see the nobleman's exaltation. He's a nobleman. He's got some authority in this area, but he's going to leave to receive a kingdom. He's going to be exalted. He's, he's going to be elevated. And Jesus, after going to the cross and dying an ignominious death on our behalf for our sin, according to Paul, is exalted to the right hand of God. Therefore, God has given them the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and every tongue confess, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus has left planet earth 2,000 years ago to receive a kingdom, and he's coming back. That's the, that's the relationship. This, this nobleman is present. He's overseeing his business interests. And he's, as he prepares to leave, he calls 10 of his servants. I think 10 is significant because it's not 12. If it were 12, we might think this commission only applies to the 12 apostles. Because it's 10, I think it's much easier to understand this as applying to all of us. And again, there's only three possible places you can find yourself in this parable. You can be one of the faithful servants. You can be the unfaithful servant. You can be the citizens. There's no third, fourth party sitting as a bystander. So he calls his 10 servants with the charge, his commission. He entrusts them, entrusts the servants with a modest sum to engage in business until he returns. A modest sum. Now, Jesus told similar parables to this. And it's not unexpected as he's traveling over months that he says similar things. Uh, Matthew's got a version where there's not a mina, but a talent. But let me... Let me tell you what, what a mina is. Your footnote might even say about three months' work. It's about 100, 110 days' pay for a hired laborer. So by today's essence, I'm guessing for, for a hired workman, entry level, three, four months, you're looking at maybe $10,000, $15,000, roughly, somewhere in there. The value of, Edwards says this, the value of a talent was 60 times that of a mina, which means Matthew's servants had won the lottery, so to speak, whereas Luke's parable, with a single mina each, they were only able to buy a Chevy. For Luke, here's, it's not in favor of or against buying Chevys, it's just, I'll let you sort that out afterwards. Um, but here's, here's the important point to get. This is a modest sum. The emphasis is not on the great privilege, the tremendous responsibility. It's on faithfulness. Okay, let me read a little further here on, from Edwards. For Luke, Jesus' disciples are not outfitted with stellar gifts and abilities in his absence. The disciples in the church are not left destitute, but neither are they left with exceptional gifts. And they are not instructed or expected to change or impress the world, but simply to be faithful in Jesus' absence with the gifts given. That's the point. 
So Jesus tailors this version of the parable. He's told something like this on many occasions, similarly. But here the emphasis is on stewardship, faithfulness. If you're entrusted to carry out someone's business, invest in the market, 17,000 is enough to do something but not do much. And his charge isn't go make me money, it's it's conduct my business. It's a test sum in a sense. This is a test to see the faithfulness of these servants. They're able to conduct some of his business in the town. And we'll see what happens when they get back. That's the emphasis. It's not on the tremendous privilege, but rather the, the, the modest sum that becomes a test by which to measure their faithfulness. And his charge to them is to be engaging in business until he returns. He's not there to do it himself. He's got 10 servants doing it. Likewise, God has given you gifts, given me gifts, and our gifts are not absolutely amazing, but they're sufficient. Sufficient to get some work done. And God's charge is that we be faithful about his business. So I think that's the relationship. Commissioned with a, each servant was given a modest sum to engage in business until he returns. In contrast to that, as he prepares to leave, the citizens have another response. His citizens hated him. They hated this rule, and they sent a delegation. And again, this is them acting as citizens. They're Roman citizens, presumably. They have rights. No taxation without representation. Don't tread on us. Whatever their slogans were. They send following the king. Because here's the picture. If you're in the Roman Empire, you would go petition to Caesar, the great emperor, to get your kingdom. So this leader's going, presumably, to Rome, to receive his kingdom. This is a far-off country, but the most simple correlation would be Rome. And they send a group of people with them to let Caesar know, hey, we don't like this guy. And we're Roman citizens. And we do not want him to rule over us. We hate him. He's a jerk. Don't do it. Okay? That's another group of people. And then there are people you talk to. I talk to. They're consumed with their rights. It's as though God has to explain himself. I mean, understand this. God is not up for election. You didn't vote for him, it doesn't matter. He's God. That, that's important, because we, we, we live in a country founded on revolution. And so hardwired into us is that notion that, you know, I have some say in this. No, you don't when it comes to the king of the universe. It's simply a matter of whether you resent his rule and resist his rule and refuse his rule or whether you accept it. There's no other option. I mean, yes, in the book of Revelation, armies will gather to try to fight God. It does not go well for them. It does not go well for them at all. So in this parable, we've got people viewing themselves as having rights, exercising their rights, and what's characterizing them is that they don't want this man to rule over them. Which again, the question to ask for us is not, what do you say about Jesus? And what do you sing about Jesus? And how do you emotionally get about Jesus? The real practical question you want to figure out where you're on this parable. How do you feel about Jesus' commands and right to rule over you? At the end of the day, do you call the shots? At the end of the day, do you decide what you're going to do? Or at the end of the day, does King Jesus get to tell you what to do? Because what identifies these people, we do not want this man to reign over us. Do you want Jesus to reign over you? Practically, governing your affairs, telling you how to spend your money, how to spend your time, what to do? Or, I'll take what he says under consideration. So don't, don't decide, I'm not the citizens because I love Jesus. You're not the citizens if you welcome Jesus' rule over your life. Otherwise, you're the citizens. That's what characterizes them. They don't want to be ruled by this man. They want to rule themselves. I think autonomy, the desire for autonomy is at the root of the fall. Adam and Eve. We can follow God's instructions or we can, like Frank Sinatra, do it our own way. So that's the first step. The man, the nobleman is leaving to receive a kingdom. He calls his servants, those who recognize his rule, those who understand they're under his authority. He gives them a charge and a task. It's a modest sum. It's a test sum. Enough for them to do work and to be busy, but it's not monumental. And then in contrast, these citizens hate him so much so, they organize a delegation to go protest, picket, filibuster, whatever. They have their, you know, a thousand-man march, whatever it is. 
to lobby against this man being their king. That's, that's the setup. Now, all the action happens upon his return. He leaves a nobleman, but he returns with a kingdom. So now we're looking at a king returns giving fitting rewards. A king returns giving fitting rewards. And I want you to notice that at this point of his return, all fates are settled. While he's gone, there's some opportunity for people to change categories. Rebellious citizens can become dutiful servants. Faithful servants can evidence themselves as unfaithful servants. And those who've been formerly unfaithful can become faithful servants. There's movement allowed within these groups prior to his return. But immediately upon his return, he settles up. There's a comeuppance. There's a reckoning. And at that point, all fates are settled. Likewise, while Christ delays, while he has not returned, there is opportunity for you to become his, his servant, his slave. You can become an obedient slave, a faithful slave, or you can become an unfaithful one. Or you can identify yourself as one of the citizenry. I'm still waiting to decide if I'm casting my vote for Jesus so I see what his full platform is and what benefits package he brings. Okay? There's, there's time to move around now. But once the king returns, fates are settled. And so we go to the first servant. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered those servants to whom he had given money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now, I think the ESV's translation there is a little unhelpful. Again, because it might make the emphasis that this man wants gain. But it's the same word, slightly altered verb form, of what was translated up in verse 13, engage in business. Let me read a a note from a commentator. Um, This translation implies the king is interested in gain. The Greek does not require that sense. It's a compound, and it relates to its meaning. The emphasis remains on engaging in business rather than on financial gain and profit. Whether the disciples have faithfully dedicated themselves to the call and gifts of Jesus. The sense of verse 15 is thus the master's interest in seeing whether the servants had acted faithfully with the money entrusted to them or not. He called them to see what they had done. Okay? And so the first servant comes before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. That is a ridiculous Profit. Unexpected. And I don't think we're supposed to conclude from it. This is a business genius. No, I, don't, I don't think that. I think what we're supposed to conclude is that disciples who employ their gifts faithfully and joyfully cannot anticipate the results, but they'll be astonished by them. This is an astonishing result. Clearly, he's been faithful, and he's credited for that. He was faithful. He was out there with his time, using his master's money in the marketplace, investing, doing business, and it produced 10 additional minus. He got 11 minus. What's the response? His master praises him. He's faithful. A tenfold response. His praise, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in very little. Notice again, the emphasis, the mina is very little. This is apparently a very rich man. Fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars is very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. This is a large kingdom this man's received. Ten cities this man is now going to share his master's rule. And, and what you see here is the remarkable disproportion of the reward if a business owner had a faithful servant who, who was investing money and working hard and, and took seven, ten, twelve thousand dollars and turned it into a hundred thousand, the jump from that to you be a regent over ten cities is remarkable. It's 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 astounding, in fact. And you wonder, okay, how does this relate then to the Christian life? The rewards that Christ offers his faithful servants are equally large. And abundant and opulent. Listen, listen to uh, what Jesus says to the disciples in chapter 22. Luke 22 speaks to the 12 disciples. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigns to me a kingdom. This is part of the parable that lines up perfectly. Jesus will receive a kingdom. And he's giving them rulership in it. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus promises the apostles they will sit on thrones 
with Christ and judge the 12 tribes. You might think, well, that's just the apostles. Listen to what Jesus says in the book of Revelation. Remember, Revelation starts with seven letters to seven churches, and in five of the seven, Jesus has a complaint, and he encourages them to persevere, be faithful, and he promises a reward if they will be faithful. Listen to Revelation 2.26. The one who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. That doesn't mean Rich and Doris. That means the nations. Revelation 3.21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 talks about we will judge angels. So Christ is coming to receive a kingdom and when he returns, his faithful servants will find, we will find to our shock that our faithfulness with the paltry gifts, the small amount he's given us, will be rewarded with co-regency, co-rule in Christ's kingdom. This is a generous, amazingly generous Lord. Keep that in mind as you hear the third slave's complaint. And this isn't just for the 12 apostles. This is for all faithful disciples. The second servant comes forward. Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Now here I think simply for brevity's sake, the, the praise is cut off, not because he's less praiseworthy, but the, the, the pattern follows. And I'm assuming all 10 come forward. We only get the first two as test cases to focus on the third, who's the one that really matters but there's, there's no rebuke. Like I was saying earlier, that what God chooses to do with your faithfulness, the results of it, and what you see of it, and what you don't see of it, they aren't really what matters in this parable. The faithfulness and the assumption that if a servant is faithful, there will be fruit, is what matters. And some people are going to be faithful, and they'll see communities change, and other people will be faithful, and we may not know until we get to glory what a grandmother's prayers for her children for 20 years wrought. And some of it will look large and some of it will seem small. And I'm convinced when we get to heaven, some of the largest co-regents will be people you and I have never heard of. Ruling over 30 cities because of their faithfulness. A five-fold return, he will rule over five cities. So the master is generous and he is free with his praise then we get point C, the other servant. Now, in Greek, there's two words you can use for other. One other of the same type. In John, when Jesus talks about, I'll send you the counselor, the other one I will send is homois. This is heteros. Other with the emphasis of a different sort. This is the other servant. A different type, different class, different sort. He's different than the other nine. We'll see why in a moment. The other servant. And he doesn't come with faithfulness. He comes with an excuse. And we'll read his excuse. Verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. And you take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Here's the other servant. So here's his excuse. Basically, he's saying, you put me in a no-win situation. Because you're unreasonable and you're unjust, I knew that whatever money I'd make, you'd just take it from me. And if I failed, I'd be condemned. So I thought the safest course, since I had nothing to gain, was to avoid losing anything and just keep the money safe in a handkerchief. Here it is. Here's your money. At least that way I can be assured of not being punished for failure. That's That's the logic. Now, one of the questions we've got to ask is, is this criticism of the nobleman in this parable valid? Now, it's possible that it is. It's possible that it is. Jesus has already made spiritual truth from some really unlikely characters. The unjust steward 
or comparing prayer to a persistent widow to a judge who neither fears God nor fears man. So it's, it is possible that, that, that Jesus meant for us to think that this nobleman was a jerk, was harsh, severe. I don't think so. And I think the context gives us some evidence to suggest that. First of all, we've seen his lavish rewards. If he's stingy, if he takes all that he can get, and even what isn't his, that doesn't seem fitting with a man who, we've well, been faithful with one mina. Here's 10 cities to rule. Well done. That doesn't seem fitting. But there's a little note, even in the text, that I think makes it clear that this charge doesn't fit. Notice, it's subtle. Notice this. Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Guess what? When the servant who had the one mina turned into 10, did the master say, ah, I'm going to reap what I did not sow and take it all? What did he take? He had one mina that turned in, made 10 more minas. Now he has 10 minas. What did the master take? The one. He had 11, as your one mina made 10. And then presumably the master took the one and let him keep the 10 he made profit. Is this a man who reaps or he doesn't sow? No. Not only does this servant get to rule over 10 cities, he gets to keep, presumably, continue working with the profit from his labor. Nothing in this parable suggests that this nobleman is, in fact, worthy of this accolade. In fact, I think it suggests that this servant doesn't know his master very well, doesn't know his character, doesn't know what he's like. If anything, what it sounds like is he shares the view of the citizenry, right? Sounds like he's bought some of the, the slander, some of the, 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 the vibe from the citizens who don't want to rule over us. So he finds himself in the unenviable position, believing this, that he's in a no-win situation. So might as well just play it safe. And the master's response doesn't concede that he is, in fact, these things. What he's doing is using the servant's own logic. He says, I'll condemn you by your own words, you wicked servant. I'm going to pause for a moment because there's a lot of debate. Does this guy ultimately picture someone who's saved and goes to heaven or not? That's not really the point. I don't think Luke solves that problem clearly. Whatever he is, he's a wicked servant and he stands condemned. That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound good. If, if your point of listening to this sermon is to try to find some way that you can make yourself be this guy and slip by, you're not getting the point of the parable. That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is you want to be like the first two servants. Now, this, par- this servant is called wicked, this servant is condemned, and this servant in no way shares in his master's rule of his kingdom. If you want to argue that there's believers who are wicked, condemned, and don't share in any of the benefits of Christ's kingdom, good luck with that. I don't think that's what we're trying to get from here. I think this is an exhortation to be the first two servants. So the master responds, and I'll read a quote here. The master repeats the servant's categories, take, set down, reap, sow, to make the case that if he had really thought this way about him, then he should have made some effort to do something beneficial. So all the master's doing is saying, by your own logic, by your own reasoning, you stand condemned. He's neither arguing, nor admitting, nor denying the charge. He's simply saying, okay, let's take your assumption. You still stand condemned. If the servant really felt this way, he is a fool, since he knew the king to be a hard master. He is in a no-win situation. If his assessment of his master is right, then he should have done something to gain his master's pleasure. If his assessment is wrong, then he's insulted his master and failed to obey him. The slave is either lying about how he feels about the master to excuse his lack of response, or he has seriously misjudged the master. Above all, he has failed to respond to the king. You know, I think the context gives us another reason why he might have failed to act, why this might be an excuse. It's possible he really believes this. But the charge was take, take the mina and conduct business, presumably in the town filled with the citizens who hate the master conducting his business. Mightn't there be some fear that these citizens who are so up in arms about this man would not take kindly to his emissaries, to his representatives, carrying on his business on his behalf? Might there be some notion that perhaps some level of persecution, some level of scorn, some measure of mistreatment might follow those who identify with this master and carry on his business? That's possible. 
I can't be dogmatic with it, but I think the context at least suggests it. It's possible this man's real reason for not wanting to do it is, I don't want to go out publicly and spend your money and act on your behalf to a town that hates you this much. I don't know. It could be. He's condemned by his own words. His excuse, his condemnation, and then we see his loss. His mina is given to the servant with ten. So understand what this means. The others continue in their stewardship and share in the rule. This man, whatever you make of him, has no further stewardship and no rule. And he's given to one with ten, by which the other servants are surprised. And they cry, Lord, he already has ten minas. But see, this isn't about fairness. This isn't about everyone getting treated the same. This is about how grace operates, and it's about the, the proverb that Jesus quotes, I tell you that to whom everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And it gets back to the issue of faithfulness. God has given you something. He's given me something. He's either going to take it away from you and more, or he's going to reward you. The question is, what do you do with that? What do you do with that in his absence? Are you being faithful? Are you conducting his business? Are you identifying yourself as a servant, as a slave who has another person's work to do? Or are you a citizen, a free agent? And every now and then I volunteer my time to the king and the kingdom. It all comes down to who you are and how you're living faithfully. The Lord's explanation, all who are faithful with little will be entrusted with much. I remember when I first came um, as an associate pastor here, um, and Pastor Gary asked me to do the sign out there. And I think I, well, I know I did. Some error. I didn't make a misspelling, Daniel. But I think I left a period off or something. And Pastor Gary sent me a note that just had that verse written on it. No, no. And, and it was well done, well taken, well taken. He didn't smack me in the face. He just, and, you know, I can think, I'm working on a sermon. This is important. I don't have time for receipts. Where's Renee? She'd be amening this. No, she's, Okay. <laughs> And you got to remember, whoever's faithful little is faithful of much. And sometimes we kid ourselves. And we, no, no, we, we justify our failure in little things. I read my Bible with my family. Don't read my Bible at all. Because I'm going to do big things for the kingdom of God. No, if you're not faithful with little, you're not going to be faithful with much. And if you will be faithful with little, the Lord's going to give you more to be faithful with. Faithfulness is the issue. Not big things for Jesus. That's the issue. All who are faithful with little will be entrusted much. He's already said this word for word in Luke 8.18. And those who are unfaithful will lose what they have. Now, again, people debate, is this man saved? Is he not saved? Luke isn't clear. There's, there's room for some hope that this guy slips by. And admittedly, in 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks of a category of one whose work burns up. And he himself be saved as though um, through fire. But let me read to you how the parallel passage in Matthew ends. Matthew 25, 29 to 30. For everyone who has will be given more, will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the least we can say is this. A lot of people who end up like this go to hell. Maybe there are some that slip by, there was some faith, their works burn up, they escape as though through flames. But Matthew clearly gives us a category of unfaithful servants who are shut outside. If your goal of this message is to try to find some way to make this where you're at, why don't you spend your time trying to become the faithful servant? It's not, it's not, it's not what this parable is for. And finally, we see the citizens, their, their response, their result. Verse 27, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. They're summoned and they're slaughtered. Again, what characterizes them is they resent and they resist his rule over them. And so the question for us, if we're honest, is do we resent? Do we resist Christ's rule over us? Do we think he's a harsh master expecting ridiculous things from us? It's unreasonable, all the things God wants me to do. I'd suggest you don't know God very well, and you're not in a very good place. What identifies his enemies is they resist his rule. 
Look at it right there. Who do not want me to reign over them. Do you, do you want the risen Christ to reign over you or not? This isn't how you become a Christian. But this is how you identify whose team you're playing for. And which of these three categories you are. There are those who are faithful with God's given them. They recognize themselves as his slaves, his authority over them. And there are those who resent and resist his rule over their lives. Which one are you? Which one are you? And again, you might be tempted to think, well, this is hyperbole. He's summoning them and he's slaughtering them. This is actually reminiscent of what Samuel did to Agag. Remember, Saul was commanded to go and wipe out the Amalekites, and he spared King Agag, kept him as kind of trophy. 1 Samuel 15, 32. And then Samuel said, bring to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Turn to Revelation 14. I think... The rewards are literal. This is a parable that isn't that hard to understand. Faithful servants get to rule cities. Faithful Christians will rule cities with Christ and his kingdom. And his enemies are summoned before him and slaughtered. Revelation chapter 14. This is important because Jesus talks more about hell and judgment than anyone else in the Bible. And there are many attempts to soften up the, the fear of judgment. Hell is just separation from God. Well, in a sense, sort of. Read this. Revelation 14. How literal is this? Some of them bring them here before me and slaughter them in my presence. I think it's pretty literal. Verse 9, another angel, a third followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in this image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Summon my enemies before me and slaughter them. That looks to me pretty literal. See, I think one of the chief terrors of hell is the presence of a holy God whom you cannot escape. Present not in salvation, not in grace, not in love, not in kindness, but in wrath, in righteousness, in fury. So I, I don't think this is hyperbole at any point in this parable. The rewards are not hyperbolic. The punishments are not hyperbolic. Christ's enemies will be summoned before him, and they'll be tormented with fire. In verse 12, I mean, verse 11, um, sorry, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. The stakes are high, folks. Your future eternity could be ruling with Christ and his kingdom or being slaughtered forever in front of him. You don't escape him. He's coming back. You're going to be summoned to give an account. And what matters is which of these three categories we find ourselves in. Now, hopefully, you'll find yourself the faithful servant. You identify the faithful servant, not because of how loud you sing, but how faithful you're being with God has given you. And he's given us different things. And faithfulness will look like different things in different areas. But are you about God's business? Are you viewing yourself as his slave, his servant? Are you pursuing his interests? Or... Do you identify with yourself with the citizens? You know, I'll give God some of my time and I'll do some things, but at the end of the day, I call the shots, I'm the boss, and I'm certainly not going to become one of those religious fanatics. I mean, you can only go so far. Are you negotiating with, resisting, resenting God's rule in your life? Or are you really, in a sense, the most pitiable position, the person who would identify themselves as God's servant and slave? But because of unfaithfulness, evidence is you don't really know him, stands condemned. Is called wicked by the Lord. Now maybe, just maybe, some people like that can slip through based on the state of their heart and what's going on. But I, I wouldn't want to bank my future eternity on that. Now you become a Christian by turning to the Lord, 
faith, trusting him as your savior, trusting him as your salvation, as the one who bore sin on your behalf. And you evidence that you are a new creation. You evidence that his spirit is in you by the changed life, by the new identification. I used to be one thing, now I'm the Lord's servant. So this isn't a parable about how one becomes these things, but rather what evidences these categories. This is the word's last teaching before he enters Jerusalem to die. See, that's the final and most amazing thing. In the parable, and this is one part that doesn't line up, the king presumably goes, the nobleman presumably goes to Caesar to plead, to finagle, to barter, to bribe, to, to find somebody to get his kingdom. Christ is going to go receive a kingdom after first dying for his citizens. He's not going to bribe the father. He's not going to get a filibuster going. He's going to die. This is a nobleman who dies for his subjects. So even if there's any hint in this parable that the nobleman might be a jerk, our Lord is a savior. He just said he has come to seek and save the lost. And so I pray that you would examine yourself, we would examine ourselves, and by God's grace, we would be those faithful servants who would hear, well done, good servant. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we find ourselves in this passage, but we may not like where we find ourselves. And Lord, I believe you gave this text as a warning that we might make the best use of the time Walk in the light while there is light. And so, Lord, we cannot in our own strength be faithful. We cannot muster it up within ourselves. So we cry out to you that you, by your grace, would give us faith. That you would cause us to walk in your statutes. That even as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, we would do so knowing that it's you who works within us to will, to do, according to your good pleasure we might hear, well done, faithful servant, that we would identify and attack all parts of our heart that resent and resist your rule. Oh, Lord God, sanctify your bride. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed. <laughs>